Section 5 of Roman History, the Early Empire by William Wolfe Capes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 2. Tiberius, A.D. 14 to 37, Part 1. Tiberius Claudius Nero was the son of Tiberius Nero and Livia, and was carried by them while still an infant in their hurried flight after the surrender of Perugia. On their return to Rome, after the general peace, his parents were separated by the imperious will of Octavianus, who made Livia his wife. Losing his father at the age of nine, and taken from the nursery to pronounce the funeral speech, he was placed again under his mother's care, and became the object of her ambitious hopes. He married the daughter of Agrippa, and loved her well but was forced to leave her afterwards for Julia, who brought as her dowry the prospects of the imperial succession. He was soon sent to learn the business of a soldier, serving in the campaign in Pannonia and Germany, and dispatched on missions of importance, such as to crown Tigranes in Armenia as a subject prince, and to carry home the eagles which had been lost in Parthia by Crassus. At home, all the old offices of state were pressed upon him, till at last he was honoured even with the significant honour of the tribunician power. Yet Augustus seems to have had little liking for him, and to have noted keenly all his faults, the taciturn sullenness which contrasted painfully with the emperor's gayer moods, his awkward gestures and slow articulation when he spoke, the haughtiness of manner which came naturally to all the Claudian line, and the habit of hard drinking, on which the rude soldiers spent their wit when they termed him punningly, Babarius Mero. The emperor even went so far as to speak to the senate on the subject, and to say that they were faults of manner rather than of character. For the rest we hear that he was comely in face and well-proportioned, and handsome enough to attract Julia's fancy. Nor could he be without strong natural affection, for he loved his first wife fondly, and lived happily with Julia for a while, and showed the sincerest sorrow when his brother Drusus died. This is all we hear of him till the age of thirty-five. Then comes a great break in his career. Suddenly, without a word of explanation, he wishes to leave Rome and retire from public life. Livia's entreaties, the emperor's protests, and the remonstrances of friends have no effect, and having wrung from Augustus his consent, he betakes himself to Rhodes in 6 BC. What were his motives cannot now be known. It may have been in part his disgust at the guilty life of Julia, who outraged his honor and allowed her paramours to make merry with his character, in part perhaps weariness at being always kept in leading strings at Rome. But most probably it was jealousy at the rising star of the young grandsons of the emperor, and fear of the dangers that might flow from too visible a rivalry. In the pleasant Isle of Rhodes he lived a while quietly enough, though he could not always drop his rank. One day he was heard to say that he would go and see the sick, he found that he was saved the trouble of going far in search as the magistrates had them all brought out and laid in order under the arcades, with more regard to his convenience than theirs. 
Another time, when a war of words was going on among the wranglers in the schools, he stepped into the fray and was so much hurt at being roughly handled that hurrying home he sent a guard to seize the poor professor who had ventured to ignore his dignity. At length, growing weary of his stay at Rhodes, he said that the young princes were now secure of the succession and that he might safely take a lower place at Rome. But Augustus coldly bade him stay and take no further trouble about those whom he was so determined to forsake. Then came a time of terrible suspense. He knew that he was closely watched and that the simplest words were easily misjudged. The emperor reproached him with tampering with the loyalty of the officers who put in at Rhodes to see him. He shunned the coast and lived in solitude to avoid all official visits, and yet he heard to his alarm that he was still regarded with suspicion, that threatening words had passed about him in the intimate circle of the young Caesars, that his prospects looked so black that the citizens of Nemausus, Nîmes, had even flung his statue down to curry favor with his enemies, that his innocence would help him little, and that at any moment he might fall. Only Thrasyllus, his astrologer, might see him to excite him with ambiguous words. But Livia's influence was strong enough at last to bring him back to Rome in 2 AD, after more than seven years of absence, to live, however, in complete retirement in the gardens of Mycenaeus, to take like a schoolboy to mythology and pose the grammarians who formed his little court with nice questions about the verses which the sirens used to sing or the false name which the young Achilles bore. Not until the death of the young Caesars was he taken back to favor and adopted by the emperor as his son. But the weariness of those long years of forced inaction, the lingering agony of that suspense had done their work and he resigned himself henceforth without a murmur to the emperor's will. Not a moment of impatience at the caprices of the sick old man, not an outspoken word nor hasty gesture now betrayed his feelings, but as an apt pupil in the school of hypocrisy about him, he learned to dissemble and to wait. The only favor that he asked was to take his post in every field of danger and to prove his loyalty and courage. With all his powers of self-restraint, he must have breathed more freely in the camp than in the stifling air of Rome, and the revolt in Pannonia gave him the opportunity he needed. That war, said to be the most dangerous since the wars with Carthage, tasked for three years all his resources as a general at the head of fifteen legions. Scarcely was it closed when the defeat of Varus summoned him to the German frontier to avenge the terrible disaster. In the campaigns that followed, he spared no vigilance or personal effort, shared the hardships of the soldiers, and enforced the rigorous discipline of ancient generals. Not only does Wellius Paterculus, who served among his troops, speak of his commander in terms of unbounded praise, but later writers who paint generally a darker picture describe his merits at this time without reserve. From such duties he was called away to the deathbed of Augustus, whom he found at Nola, either dead already or almost at the last gasp. But Livia had been long since on the watch and had strictly guarded all approach to his bedside and let no one know that the end was near 
till her son was ready and their measures had been taken. He had been long since marked out for the succession by the formal act of adoption which made him the natural heir, as also by the partnership in the tribunician dignity which raised him above all other subjects. But the title to the sovereign rank was vague and ill-defined, and no constitutional theory of succession yet existed. As the empire, by name and origin, rested on a military basis, the consent of the soldiery was all-important. If the traditions of many years were to have weight, the Senate must be consulted and respected. The legions were far away upon the frontiers, in greatest force upon the side of Germany and Pannonia, and the first news that came from the north was that the two armies were in mutiny, clamoring for higher pay and laxer discipline. The hasty levies raised after the defeat of Varus had lowered the general morale and carried to the camp the turbulent license of the capital. On the Rhine there was the further danger that Germanicus, his nephew, who was then in supreme command, should rely on his influence with his troops and lead them on or be led by them to fight for empire. This son of Drusus, who had been the popular idol of his day and who was said to have hankered after the old liberties of the Republic, had won himself the soldiers' hearts by his courtesy, gallantry, and grace, and the familiar name of Germanicus which they gave him is the only one by which history has known him since. They were ready to assert their right to be consulted. The power which they defended was in their hands to give at a word from him, and if that word had been spoken they would certainly have marched in arms to Rome. But he was not fired by such ambitious hopes, nor had he seemingly any sentimental dreams of ancient freedom. He took without delay the oath of obedience to Tiberius, restored discipline after a few anxious days of mutiny, and then tried to distract the thoughts of his soldiers from dangerous memories by a series of campaigns into the heart of Germany. Tiberius, meanwhile, at home was feeling his way with very cautious steps. While he was still uncertain of the attitude of Germanicus and the temper of the legions, he used nothing but ambiguous language, affected to decline the reins of state, kept even the Senate in suspense, and at last, with feigned reluctance, accepted office, only for a while till they should see fit to give him rest. It was in keeping with such policy that he shrank from the excessive honors which the Senate tried to lavish on him, and declined even the titles which Augustus had accepted. Either from fear or from disgust, he showed dislike to the flattery which was at first rife about him, checked it when it was outspoken, and resented even as a personal offense the phrases lord and master as applied to him. Meantime, the Senate was encouraged to think that the powers of administration rested in their hands. Nothing was too paltry, nothing too grave to be submitted for their discussion. Even military matters were at first referred to them, and generals in command were censured for neglecting to report their doings to the council. The populace of Rome, however, was treated with less courtesy. The ancient forms of the elections were quite swept away, and in legislation also the Senate took the place of the popular assembly. Little attempt was made to keep the people in good humor by shows of gladiators or gorgeous pageants, and Tiberius would not try to put on the studied affability with which Augustus sat for hours 
through the spectacles or the frank courtesy with which he stayed to salute the passers-by but on the other hand he showed himself at first sincerely desirous of just rule warned provincial governors who pressed him to raise higher taxes that a good shepherd shears but does not flay his sheep and kept a careful watch on the tribunals to see that the laws were properly enforced vigorous measures were adopted to put down brigandage the police of italy were better regulated popular disturbances in the capital or in the provinces were promptly and even sternly checked and many of the abuses were remedied which had grown out of the old rites of sanctuary the policy of the early years of the new reign must have been largely due to livia's influence for many years tiberius had been much away from rome and it was natural that he should at first rely upon his mother's well-tried statecraft her knowledge of men and familiar experience of the social forces of the times he owed all to her patient scheming even if she had not as men thought swept away by poison the obstacles to his advancement her position was for many reasons a commanding one the will of augustus had named her as co-heiress giving her the official title of augusta and raised her by adoption to the level of her son she shared with him therefore in some measure the imperial dignity their names were coupled in official language the letters even of tiberius ran for some time in her name as well as his there were numerous coins of local currency at rome and in the provinces on which her name was stamped sometimes joined with her sons but oftener alone at her bidding or by her influence priesthoods were formed and temples rose in all parts of the empire to extend the worship of the deified augustus and inscriptions still preserved upon them testify to her pride of self-assertion as well as to the policy with which she strove to surround the imperial family with the solemn associations of religious awe to that end also she enlisted the fine arts in her service and found employment for the first sculptors engravers and painters of the day in multiplying copies of the features of the ruling race and endearing them to the imagination of the masses the senate was not slow to encourage the ambition of augusta vote after vote was passed as the members tried to outdo each other in flattery till they raised her even to the foremost place and proposed to call the emperor livius to do her honour tiberius indeed demurred to this and before long there were signs clear enough to curious eyes that he was ashamed to feel he owed her all impatient of her tutelage and jealous of her high pretensions men spoke in meaning whispers to each other and wits made epigrams on the growing coldness between mother and son they said he vainly strove to keep her in the shade old as she was she clung to power and state and relied on her talents and influence to hold her own the senate in the camp she could not visit but in all else she claimed to rule as he seemed to shun the eyes of men she came forward more in public won popular favour by her courtesies and generous gifts gathered her crowd of courtiers round her conferred at her will the offices of state and tried to overawe the courts of justice when the interests of her favourites were at stake in the circle of her intimates we hear of irreverent wits whose caustic speeches did not spare the emperor himself and once we read when words ran high between augusta and her son she took from her bosom old letters of augustus 
and read sarcastic passages that bore on his faults of manner or of temper. This coolness did not lead to open rupture, for his old habits of obedience were confirmed enough to bear the strain, and he submitted to her claims, though grudgingly and ungraciously enough. On the whole, she used her influence wisely, and while she ruled, the policy of state was cool and wary. She could be stern and resolute enough when force seemed needful. She had given orders for the death of Agrippa Postumus as soon as his grandfather had ceased to breathe. She did not plead for pity with her son when he let Julia die a wretched death of slow starvation in her prison, and took at last his vengeance on her paramour for the mockery and outrage of the past. It is likely even that her quick eye saw the use that might be made of the old laws of treason, which had come down from the commonwealth. They had been meant to strike at men who had by open act brought dishonor or disaster on the state. Sulla was the first to make them cover libelous words, and Augustus had, though sparingly, enforced them in like cases. The Caesar had already stepped into the people's place, and screened his majesty against so-called treason. But when the Caesar had been deified, any crime against his person was heightened by the sin of sacrilege. In the language of the law, obedience to the living emperor soon became confounded with the religious worship of the dead, and loyalty became in theory a sort of adoration. Any disrespect might carry danger with it. Jesting words against the late emperor might be construed into blasphemy, when the emperor had become a god. His likeness must be held in honor, and it might be fatal even to beat a slave who clung for safety to his statue, or to treat carelessly his effigy upon a coin. A few such cases were enough to increase enormously the imperial prestige, and extend to the living members of the family some of the reverence that was gathering round the dead. But though Augusta had few scruples, she had no taste for needless bloodshed, and while she lived, she certainly exercised a restraining influence upon her son. Another of the emperor's family exerted a force of like restraint, though in a very different way. Germanicus was the darling of the legions, and might at any moment be a pretender to the throne. He had calmed his mutinous soldiery, led them more than once into the heart of Germany, visited the battlefield where Varus fell, and brought back with him in triumph the captive wife and child of Arminius, the national hero of the Germans. It might seem dangerous to leave him longer at the head of an army so devoted to their general, dangerous, perhaps, to bring him back to win the hearts of men at Rome. But his presence might be useful in the East, for the kingdoms of Parthia and Armenia had been torn by civil war and thrown into collision by the claims of rival candidates for power, and by wars of succession due in part at least to the intrigues of Rome. A general of high repute was needed to protect the frontier, and appease the neighboring powers, and the death of some of the vassal kings of Asia Minor had left thrones vacant, and wide lands to be annexed or organized it was resolved to recall Germanicus from his post and to dispatch him to the Syrian frontier on this important mission. On the north there was little to be gained by border warfare, which provoked but could not crush the resistance of the German tribes, and there was wisdom in following the counsel of Augustus not to aim at further conquests. 
Germanicus might be unwilling to retire, but the duties to which he was transferred were of high dignity and trust. Wise men noted with alarm that Solanus, who was linked to him by ties of marriage, was recalled from Syria at the time, and the haughty, self-willed Gnaeus Piso made governor in his stead. Dark rumors spread abroad that he had been chosen for the task of watching and of thwarting the young prince, and that his wife Plancina had been schooled in all the petty jealousies and spite of which Agrippina was the mark. So far, at least, all was mere suspicion, but there was no doubt that when they went to Syria, the attitude of Piso was haughty and offensive. He made a bold parade of independence, disputed the authority, and cavilled at the words and actions of Germanicus, tampered even with the loyalty of the soldiers, and drove him at last to open feud. When Germanicus fell ill soon afterwards, Piso showed indecent glee, and though he was on the eve of quitting Syria, he lingered till further news arrived. He put down by violence the open rejoicing of the crowd at Antioch when cheerful tidings came. Still he waited, and the murmur spread that the sickness was his work, and that poison and witchcraft had been used to gratify his spite, and perhaps to do the emperor's bidding. Germanicus himself was ready to believe the story and to fear the worst. The suspicions gained force as he grew weaker, and his last charge on his deathbed to his friends was to expose his murderer and avenge his death. 19 A.D. The sad story was received at Rome with passionate sorrow and resentment. His father's memory, his noble qualities and gentle bearing, had endeared him to all classes, and men recalled the ominous words that those whom the people love die early. One after another their favorites had passed away, cut off in the springtime of their youth, and now the last of them, the best beloved perhaps of all, had been sent away from them, they murmured, to the far east to die from the noxious air of Syria, or it might be from the virulence of Piso's hate. End of section 5